I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiongo Line, your fortnightly podcast fresh from our little global village and full of that unique heritage and local culture found only here in the upper Madawaska and Apiongo River Valleys. Today, we're joined by Lynn Stewart and Jeff Bowman, both members of the Apiongo Readers Theatre. They have a show about that irrepressible and merry man from Mayo himself, Thomas Patrick French. Few there are in the Upper Ottawa Valley who have never heard of T.P. French's antics. He's the man who once tried to attract and keep countless immigrant settlers along our Opiongo colonization road after it was first opened for business on September 17, 1855. That's the day T.P. French started his job as the Crown's land agent for the Opiongo Road. Probably, it was also the first day T.P. French sadly discovered what he was up against. Yet, despite all its inherent drawbacks, that Opiongo Road would eventually become the backbone of all that would grow to be culturally unique between Renfrew, where it began, and the upper reaches of Lake Opiongo, where it was to end. And that largely because of those 10 epic years that T.P. French put in, believing in the region and promoting that colonization road as only he could and did. As luck would have it, this show's idea was literally ripped from the headlines of last week's Eganville Leader, where some enterprising young scribe wrote, dare we say, an expose of your man, Thomas Patrick French, and who it turns out was quite the card. Here's Lynn Stewart with that leader article, hot off the press, followed by Jeff Bowman as T.P. French. Practically anybody bred and buttered in Dublin, Ireland over the past thousand years can tell you the significance of Clontarf. It's a very real battlefield, just a hen's race up the road from the Liffey, where back in the 11th century, Brian Boru gave the bums rush to those horrible Vikings and sent them packing. Those Vikings never came back to Ireland to bother anyone ever again, but it cost Brian Boru his very own short little life to pull it all off. But if you ask anybody in Canada the significance of our very own little Clontarf, that old ghost town stretched lackadaisically along the Opiongo Road between Mount St. Patrick and Brudenell, where at the best of times in the middle of the 19th century, it held only 150 weary souls. Most would scratch their heads if not wonder out loud if it's not some sort of fictional place, Another one of those mythical destinations government committees invent to attract troublesome tourists worse than marauding Vikings. But then again, if you could ask the likes of Thomas Patrick French, that irrepressible Irishman who founded our own very real Clontarf, the answer might be worthy of Brian Boru. Why, that's not hard, a ghostly French might say. It's the very place where I first learned to snatch victory from the giddy jaws of near certain defeat. Why, it's the very place where Canada teaches all of us irrepressible new immigrants how to do or die. And T.P. French would be right, for he knows well from where he speaks. He too once kicked the dust off his heels at the crossroads of our own little Clontarf after ten long, hard years in that beautiful little ghost town. And they were unrelenting years in its jaws of seeming defeat, but even he would have to leave to rescue his ephemeral victory elsewhere. Well, who was T.P. French? Where did he come from? And where did he go? All good questions, but the answers have seemingly evaded those inquiring minds who pass for local historians. That is, until now. 
Thanks to the wonders of digital technology, our not-so-mythical Clontarf can once again rise above the fog of local history, and the man who put it on the map, his story can be finally fully told. Thomas Patrick French was born in Ballycaneve, County Mayo, in July 1826, the eldest son of Mary Teff and Thomas Patrick French Sr., the latter both a landlord and a tenant in three separate counties of Ireland, Mayo, Galway, and Roscommon. All three counties have variously been assigned as the junior French's birthplace, and because of the vast territory involved, in all that confusion, it has often left a distinct impression that T.P. French Jr. was to the manor born. Not so. Think of the old man as someone owning a small acreage straddling a county line, Mayo and Galway. Something similar to, say, a small farm between Bangor and Barry's Bay that straddles the Hastings and Renfrew county lines, but who also rents a summer sheep pasture only a stone's throw away up towards Bark Lake and Nipissing. Now you get the idea. Nor were his father's estates and rental properties exactly prosperous, especially in the 1840s, as they were buffeted by the economic effects of the Great Hunger. So it was not surprising that by 1851, Thomas Patrick French the Younger headed out to Canada, while Thomas Patrick French the Elder headed to the Court of Encumbered Estates in Dublin. That's where Ireland's British masters at the time attempted to disentangle the mess of contending landowners' claims and tenants' rights left in the wake of the devastating Irish famine, which left over one million dead and another million forced to emigrate like T.P. French the Younger. To make matters worse, the senior T.P. French would die sometime before 1862, well over 10 years before the slow-as-molasses British Encumbered Estates Court resolved the contending claims to those assets by selling them all off to the highest bidder and keeping most of the cash for itself. Sometime in 1851, however, T.P. French landed at Quebec City and found a job with the Bank of British North America, where he worked quite successfully and made a lot of friends with whom he would keep in touch for the rest of his life. He also slowly figured out that his main chance in life was not to be found in the colonial banking system, but with the emergent public service, especially if that service was connected to the meteoric rise of one of the greatest economic booms in Canada during that time, the timber trade in the Ottawa Valley, whose happy-go-lucky participants often clogged the streets of Quebec City, awaiting their squared timber rafts to be loaded onto British ships. Over the next four years then, while living and working in Quebec City, T.P. French finagled his way into his first government contract. With its renewal every year in one form or another, his career in public service would keep him fully employed, first with the British Colonial Office, and then, after July 1, 1867, with the new Government of Canada. That first contract brought him on September the 17th, 1855, to what was then called Canada West. He set up shop at Thomas Brady's Hotel and Post Office in a rustic little village known as Mount St. Patrick, named, of course, as T.P. French well knew, after Croac Patrick, that hill masquerading as a mountain back in County Mayo, only a short distance from where T.P. French grew up. There in Canada West, 
He worked as the Crown Land Agent, charged with promoting the new Opiongo colonization road that had recently been roughly laid out from Farrell's Landing near Castleford on the banks of the Ottawa River, up through the town of Renfrew, and out along certainly the wildest and most lawless part of Canada West at that time. Known simply as Rogue's Harbour in Smith's 1846 Gazetteer, by 1855, the Opiongo had become this shining myth of misplaced hope, if not unrequited dreams, built on a rock pile of barely tenable farmland. But it was what T.P. French was expected to polish in the prospective settler's mind's eye and make shine, if not sparkle, a la proverbial bovine fecal matter. In a phrase, the Opiongo was the great white hope of the British colonial office, and he was expected to attract thousands of settlers along the Opiongo, if only to help support the Upper Ottawa timber trade that ran westward, especially along the Madawaska and Bonacher rivers into what is now known as Algonquin Park. But unlike the half-dozen other Crown land agents hired on contract in the rest of rural Canada west during this same unruly time, what the British colonial office got in Thomas Patrick French was an incorrigible and unabashed promoter of Herculean proportions. Yet, sadly for all those official bureaucratic dreams of the British colonial office, what they got was a man of little consequence. The harder T.P. French work and the more noise he made throughout the world of hopeful, if not desperate, immigrants, the more he attracted them to those free land grants along the Opiongo Road, and the more he would watch the vast majority of them eventually modify that old dictum about Julius Caesar. He came, he saw, he conquered. In T.P. French's case regarding his Opiongo immigrants, they came, they saw, they left in droves. Indeed, T.P. French was hugely successful in attracting immigrants from all over Europe who came for a look-see, but no matter how hard he might try to make the place sound impressive, it was a non-starter for any competent farmer who actually saw those 100-acre free land grants. Too soon, most headed out literally for greener pastures elsewhere, rather than spend the four long cold winters that they would need to qualify for that deed to their own chosen rock pile along the Opiongo. No one can fault T.P. French for trying every trick in the book, as well as a few which he invented. For instance, while most Crown land agents depended on the British colonial office to recruit potential immigrants, T.P. French took it upon himself to write to newspapers all over England to sing the praises of the Opiongo. He also single-handedly conceived, wrote, edited, and had printed at his own expense in February 1857 a 36-page pamphlet, Information for Intending Settlers on the Ottawa and Opiongo Road and its Vicinity, a literary work that belongs in the rarefied annals of great Canadian fiction. It's an expensive artifact today that is as rare a find for antiquarian book buyers as it was once shamelessly available by the thousands all over Europe. T.P. French even brought out a German edition for disaffected Prussians under Bismarck. Not too surprisingly, he didn't bother reaching out to any Vikings. A word to the wise. The object in writing the following pages is to present in as clear but as concise a form as possible the particular kind of information essentially necessary for all who may be inclined to emigrate to Canada. 
and to dispel the cloud of obscurity that invariably veils their future prospects of success from nine-tenths of the poorer class of immigrants who usually come to Canada. I have been careful to abstain from theorizing and to omit redundancies, whether of facts or language. There is no exaggeration in any statement I have put forth in regard to the country or in any calculation I have made to prove the advantage it offers. I write not to order. Neither do I write from any of the fair cities or thriving towns or villages that Canada now can boast of. My home is, and has been for a good while, in a new and yet remote locality, Mount St. Patrick, in the United Counties of Lanark and Runfrew, and where I have made a thorough acquaintance with bush life in all its roughest phases. It is not, then, from hearsay, but from practical personal experience that I have gleaned the information for intending settlers which I now submit. Tis true, I write in the interest of my adopted country, but I wish not to delude the ignorant or the unwary, and I honestly feel that in inducing emigration to Canada I am rendering as a great service to those who come here as to the country to which they come. To such as may wish for more detailed information about Canada generally, I would recommend the perusal of Mrs. Catherine Parr Trail's interesting and instructive book, entitled The Canadian Settler's Guide. It may be had of all booksellers in Canada for five shillings and with a map for two shillings, sixpence, at Stanford's Six Charing Cross, London. Information for intending settlers of the Ottawa and Opiongo Road and its vicinity by T.P. French, Crown Land Agent, Ottawa, Canada West, 1857. The agent appointed by His Excellency the Governor-General for the settlement of the Ottawa and Opiongo Road, finding that much ignorance still prevails with respect to the road immediately under his charge and the large and valuable tract of country which it renders accessible, submits the following for the information of all who may desire to secure themselves good farms and comfortable homes in this rapidly rising section of the province. On the Ottawa and Opiongo Road, 100 acres will be given free to any settler 18 years of age who shall take possession of the lot within one month from the date of his application, erect on it a house, 18 by 20 feet, put in a state of cultivation of at least 12 acres in the course of four years, and live on the lot during that period. Should he fulfill these conditions, he will obtain an indisputable title to the land, but failing to do so, it will be sold or given to another. Families comprising several settlers, preferring to reside on any one lot, will be exempted from the obligation of building and of residence except upon the lot of which they live, but the required cleaning and cultivation must be made on each lot. The settlers will also be required to keep the road in repair. Believing, however, that amongst many in the United Kingdom, rather exaggerated ideas prevail in regard to the value of the free grants offered by the Canadian executive to actual settlers, and knowing what a prolific source of disappointment and distress such erroneous opinions must prove to the impulsive and unreflecting, who may act upon them without due consideration, the writer feels that clarity and justice alike require that they should be promptly and permanently removed. 
There can be no doubt. A free gift from the crown of one hundred acres of good land is a boon that must not be lightly estimated. But as the Canadian government does not wish to lay claim to more liberality than they actually possess, or to have their generosity undeservedly extolled, and have, moreover, no desire to encourage emigration to this colony by sanctioning fancy sketches of rural felicity, or by permitting hopes of prosperity that cannot be completely realized to be held out. He deems it incumbent on him to remind all who may be disposed to emigrate to this country that they must not estimate the value of the land here by the standard that obtains in the present kingdom. As is the case with all other articles, the value of land is regulated by the principles of supply and demand. Hence, where there is an immense tract of country, and but a comparatively thin population as in Canada, Land cannot be the same worth as where the converse is the case, and as in England, the country is small while the inhabitants are numerous. These are broad facts that demand the most earnest consideration of the intending settler. If he possesses any wisdom, he will ponder on them seriously and balance correctly his chances of success before relinquishing his pursuits at home. Disturbing his domestic arrangements, entering upon a long and expensive journey that may possibly result in blighted expectations and a subsequent life of unavailing sorrow. In the more western counties of Canada West, the value of land approximates nearer to the English standard than in the newer ones comprised within the valley of the Ottawa, and to which attention is now directed. Owing to circumstances that the writer deems it his duty to touch upon here, this Ottawa country has not hitherto been brought as prominently before the public eye as its vast natural advantages would warrant. Consequently, it is but sparsely settled and lands are as yet to be had cheap. In the former counties, however, facts widely different, but far less cheering to the poor man present themselves. There, the Crown agents have but little lands at their disposal. The population is much larger, and as a natural result, the competition for farms has been the means of causing even wild lands to exchange owners at the high price of from five to ten pounds an acre. Yet these prices can scarcely be adduced as an evidence of superiority over the valley of the Ottawa. For by reference to authentic statistics recently collected, it appears that if a comparison be instituted between the average crops raised in these different localities, the Ottawa location holds out equal inducements in this respect to the farming settler seeking a home in Canada. Besides this, in the former counties, cleared or partially cleared farms are extremely difficult to obtain, and when such are in the market, they bring prices that place them almost entirely beyond the reach of any man possessing only moderate means which in this locality they can be easily had at figures varying from £10 exclusive, of course, of the government price, say of £20 for each 100 acres. With these facts, it is of much moment to the small capitalist and the newly arrived immigrant to be made acquainted. With a house ready to receive his family immediately on his arrival, and a few acres ready to crop, the settler need have no fear for the future. The knowledge necessary for putting in his first crop will be acquired in a few weeks from his neighbours, and before the next year he may himself be certain of being competent to render the same kind offices to all later comers. 
To those who have not friends in this country, the difficulty of procuring such farms and the possibility of being imposed upon in their purchase may seem serious obstacles. But as there is no doubt that it is the intention of a gentleman of high character and long experience to open an agency in Ottawa the ensuing spring for the negotiation of such transactions, no difficulty of delay or danger of imposition need be dreaded by the friendless stranger. The periods during which the quality of land may be best ascertained are the months of October, November, April, and May. The snow covering the earth from December to March and the thick foliage and underbrush rendering traveling through the woods rather difficult, though by no means impossible in summer. Emigrants from Europe ought to leave as early as possible in spring, and they should sail direct for Quebec, as it is the shortest and cheapest route. The following is the scale of charges and the allowance to passengers coming from Liverpool or the chief seaports of the United Kingdom. Steerage passage for 1857 by steamer from Liverpool, sailing fortnightly, eight pound eight shillings sterling. By sailing vessel, four pound ten to five pounds. Children under 12 years pay half those charges. It is believed the fares next year by steamer will be lower still. Under the new Passenger Act, the following provisions are now supplied. Three quarts of water, three and a half pounds of biscuits weekly, one pound of flour, one and a half pounds each of oatmeal, rice, and peas, one and a quarter pounds of beef, one pound of pork, two pounds of potatoes, one pound of sugar, two ounces each of tea and salt, one and a quarter ounces of pepper, half an ounce of mustard, and a quarter pint of vinegar. Invalids are also allowed medical attendance and increased space and comforts. Emigrants should take with them as many beds, blankets, and other articles of household furniture as can be conveniently carried, such things being cheaper in the mother country than here, and as settlers' property they will be admitted duty-free. As large a supply as possible of strong and warm clothing may also be brought out with advantage. But all kinds of farming implements can be procured here in Canada cheaper than they can be imported. The advice to immigrants before and during a voyage from the philanthropic pen of Very Foster Esquire may be here introduced with advantage, and it is hoped without apology to the humane gentleman who has already given it to the public in the valuable pages of Work and Wages. On your arrival in Liverpool, or other ports of departure, go straight to your lodging house, if you have chosen one, and if not, go at once to the office where your passage is engaged or where you wish to engage it, and find out when the ship will sail, where it is, and when you should go on board, and when the berths or sleeping places will be marked, and take care to be on board at that time, and to get the number of your berth marked on your passage ticket. At many of the offices, there is a store where baggage will be taken care of free of charge. Lodging. The usual charge for lodging includes use of kitchen, fire, and cooking utensils, and storing of luggage is from four pence to nine pence per night, four pence being a very common price. Children under 14 years of age are usually charged less, according to agreements. Infants, nothing. Mind you, make an agreement beforehand. 
Choice of a ship. Choose a ship that is well ventilated. That is to say, only travel in a ship which has one sleeping deck for passengers rather than two. Be careful that you cannot only walk upright on this deck, but that it is at least seven feet from the deck above, as is the case with all the liners, and that the ship has not a great deal of housing on the outside deck to interfere with proper air below. See that the ship has high bulwarks or wooden walls at least six feet high at the side of the outside deck, so as to protect passengers from being drenched every time they come on deck by the spray, whenever the sea is a little rough. The weak among my readers, and I would add the very poor as they cannot afford to choose, should be careful, if possible, to select a ship in which they are not required to cook for themselves, but are engaged to be supplied daily with enough cooked provisions. To the richer passengers who can bribe the cooks with a half-crown now and then, and to pretty women who can coax them with their smiles, or to strong men who can elbow their way with their broad shoulders, such advice is not necessary, as they can have access to the crowded cookhouse at any time, any number of times daily. But the others have often to wait for hours in the wet, or even all day, to cook a single meal, and the caprice of the cook seldom allows them even then to get a meal properly cooked. They are pushed off to make way for others until the time allowed for cooking is over or a storm rises to prevent it. They want of properly cooked food especially, and of proper ventilation, are, I believe, the principal causes of diarrhea, dysentery, typhus fever, and cholera on board ship. How to engage your passage At Liverpool, or any other port of embarkation for North America, be careful whom you employ to show you to a shipping office. Ask no questions in the street. Pay no attention to the offers of services of anyone you meet, and not even to ask your way to any place or office as each such question may cost you five or ten shillings or more. But, having gone on board a number of ships and chosen the one you like best, buy your ticket yourself at the head agency office of the ship, the address of which will be posted up in very large letters on board of the ship itself. Or, what will be better still, ask the person to whom you may have been recommended from home to get the ticket for you you will then be more sure of being charged the market rate for passage. He will probably get it cheaper for you than what you can get for yourself, and yet make a few shillings for himself in doing so. When you go to a shipping office or to a shop to make purchases, be sure to go in quite alone, as if any person shows you in or goes in with you, it will most likely be to get his commission in one way or another which will increase the price to be charged to you. All the offices and shops pay commissions of from 5 to 7.5% or more to persons who bring them customers, and the worse the ship, the higher the commission. It is therefore in the interest of persons of no character to induce emigrants to go in as bad a ship and pay as high a price for their passage as possible. When you have got your ticket, Mind you keep it, giving it up to no one except for a moment to the government officer who will visit the ship to inspect the passengers just before you sail, and who will tear off a piece of every ticket which serves him as a note of how many passengers there are on board, their ages, and so on. Keep the ticket till after the end of the voyage or as long as you like, as the law allows. 
in order that you may at all times know your rights, and as an evidence of your agreement in case of your having to seek redress. Emigrants should on no account, except when properly recommended, suffer themselves to be so misguided as to pay in Europe their passage any further than to the point of arrival of their ship in America, as it often happens that railroad or other tickets bought in Liverpool are found to be of no use in North America and the fare has to be paid over again, and no redress can be got in North America for breach of an agreement made in England. This especially applies to agreements about baggage. Of course, there are honest persons in this trade, as in others, and much expense and imposition at New York may be saved by buying tickets from such persons, who may be heard of by inquiring of the government emigration officer at each port. According to the British law, a passenger over one and under 14 years of age gets only half food allowance. And according to American law, every passenger over one year old gets full allowance. Of course, passengers will get fed according to one scale or the other, not both. The British law provides that certain substitutions may be made at the option of the master of the ship for the oatmeal and rice and very properly requires that these provisions should be given to the passengers daily in a cooked state, but this is not attended to one time in a hundred. Each passenger is entitled by law to lodgings and provisions on board from the day appointed for sailing in his ticket, or else to one shilling for every day of detention, and the same for 48 hours after arrival in America. As regards extra provisions, they must depend on taste and circumstances, as much as heretofore will not be required if the ship's provisions shall be issued cooked according to law. In my own voyage in the Washington from Liverpool to New York, which occupied 37 days, I took the following extra provisions, which I found sufficient, and which were the same in quality and quantity as I had been in the habit of supplying previously the passengers whom I had assisted to emigrate to America. One and a half stone wheaten flour, six pounds of bacon, two and a half pounds of butter, a four-pound loaf hard-baked, one pound of tea, two pounds of brown sugar, salt, soap, baking powder. These extra provisions cost ten shillings sixpence, and I consider them to be plenty so far as necessary articles are concerned. A ham, a cheese, more butter, more flour, some potatoes and onions, and in case of children, many little extras such as sweet preserves, suet, raisins, preserved milk, treacle, lemons, etc., would be palatable and desirable additions, particularly during the first fortnight until the stomach gets inured to the motion of the ship. Remember that you cannot, when at sea, run to a shop to get what you want. You must get it beforehand. I also took the following tin utensils for the use of myself and a messmate. They were of the commonest kind, though quite good enough for so temporary a purpose for one, two, or more persons. A water can, sauce and frying pan, wash basin, kettle and tea or coffee pot, a plate deep enough so as not to spill easy, a pint mug, chamber pot, knife, fork, and spoon, treacle can, a barrel and a padlock to hold my provisions, and small calico bags to hold the ship's weekly flour, oatmeal, rice, biscuit, tea, and vinegar, towels and rubbers, straw mattress, blankets, and sheets. 
But instead of buying a mattress, it would be better to bring an empty sack from home and fill it with straw at Liverpool or another port. A crock will be wanted for the butter. Bring some Epsom salts or pills or other purging medicine with you and plenty of treacle for children as rolling in bed and want of occupation during the voyage stops digestion. Families would do well to take with them a slop pail, a broom, and a small shovel. The handles and spouts of all such tin utensils should be riveted as well as soldered. The bottoms of trunks should have a couple of strips of wood nailed onto them lengthwise, one at the front edge and the other at the back edge, to keep them off the damp floor. See that you get all the articles from the ship's store that you pay for. Almost any sort of clothes will do for the voyage. Dirt, grease, tar, and salt water will spoil anything good. The last things to do before going on board is to get a few loaves of fresh bread, hard-baked, and a good-sized piece of roasted or boiled meat to eat when cold. An emigrant's guide, which I have seen, contains this sound advice. When the time arrives to go on board ship, do so without delay not allowing yourself to be persuaded by the lodging housekeeper to sleep on shore, as there will be plenty of time in the morning. Such an indulgence has cost many the loss of a passage and a week's delay in Liverpool. Go on board your ship, if possible, before it moves out of the dock, rather than after it has gone into the river, as in the latter case you may have to stop for hours in the rain on the pier, waiting for the small steamer which is to take you alongside the ship, and getting your luggage and provisions and bedding, for which there is no shelter, and it and you get soused and spoiled with the wet, or else have to hire a small boat to get you the, to the ship at an enormous expense. Whether you go in the steamer or in a small boat, you will have to get on board in a very scrambling manner, and your baggage may get all knocked to pieces, as often happens. For the cartage or porterage of your baggage, from your lodging to your ship, Make a clear agreement beforehand with the carter or porter as to what you are to pay, and let that agreement include the carrying of your baggage not only on board the ship, but alongside of your berth. From the moment your luggage gets on board, take care that it be well watched. And if you lie in the ship in a dock at night, keep a close guard over it, as ships are at such times infested by thieves who cannot be known from passengers, and whom the officers of the ship are otherwise too busy to look after. The Voyage The berths or sleeping places are each from six to six and a half feet long and eighteen inches wide, range one over the other in double shelves along the side of the ship. Single men are berthed separately from the rest of the passengers. All clothing and other baggage not wanted at sea should be put out of the way till the end of the voyage, as the officers of the ship may direct. Passengers should be particularly clean on board a crowded ship to prevent ship fever from breaking out. This is very important, and should keep much on deck to breathe the fresh air for the same reason and pay a cheerful obedience to the discipline of the ship. The floor should be sprinkled with vinegar sometimes to sweeten the air, and chloride of lime should be sprinkled now and then between decks. Be careful of your sea stores, as your passage may be longer than you expect, and it is better to have some at the end than to be short at sea. How emigrants may secure good treatment for future passengers more effectually than can be done by Acts of Parliament, 
whose regulations are easily evaded. Whenever it happens, as is sometimes the case, that passengers have received the full allowance and provisions of good quality for which they have agreed and paid, and have been otherwise very well treated during the voyage, they should, in justice to the captain or other officers, before leaving the ship, express their thanks to them in a written address and have it published in the newspapers where they land, for which no charge will in generally be made, and then post a few copies of these papers to the principal papers in the old country, and the same if they have been very ill-treated. Time now for a short break, if only to catch your breath. But don't be long. More surprises are on the way about Thomas Patrick French, especially if you haven't read the Eganville Leader or Joan Finnegan's Life Along the Opiongo. <laughs> 